Welcome to the Do Daily Podcast. I am Nick Boucher with Helios Quantitative Research. This show is designed to support financial advisors and the conversations that you are having with your clients. Each month, I'll be joined by Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel from our research team. We'll be taking a deep dive into recent and important events. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to the September edition of the Do Dilly podcast. I am your host, Nick Boucher. I'm the Director of Marketing Operations at Helios. I am joined by my co-hosts, Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel. Say hi, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, Nick. How are you doing? Doing all right. All right, guys. Let's dive right into it. Uh, Obviously, one of the big topics over the last month has been the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, ending a two-decade-long conflict. When things like this happen, should they be on the mind of investors? And what impacts have we seen on the financial markets? Yeah, I mean, that conflict ending was semi-planned and we had a lot of newsworthy events around it and, you know, how abrupt the exit was and a lot of headline grabbing news articles surrounding the exit. But at the end of the day, when you look at the stock market, it was pretty unfazed. And if you dissect that a little bit, you try to understand why. And I I think in in this event, it was a 20-year war. The amount of spending had really kind of been reduced over a period of time that from an actual government spending standpoint, the stimulus caused by the spending was not significant. And now that we exited the war, it was a pretty pretty much a non-event for the markets. But what's really interesting, if you look at just war in general, it kind of it poses that question of you know this phenomenon where wartime has historically been pretty good for the stock market. And if you think about that, I think the knee-jerk reaction would be, well, global conflict, global policy uncertainty, all of those things should be bad news for a stock market. They don't like uncertainty. They don't like destruction. But when you think about what happens from a policy standpoint during war, there's often excessive government spending. Companies get propped up. We start building things. Additional labor is required. And a lot of economic drivers that pump up an economy especially in the U.S., when the war is not being fought on your homeland, have been really stimulative to the U.S. stock market. So I think that the withdrawal is just a reminder of that phenomenon. There's a lot of really cool research out there. There's a piece by the, it was the Swiss Economic or Swiss Finance Institute looked at kind of just wars in general over the past hundred years, and they called it the war puzzle where when hmm. quick conflict comes about, like a 9-11, markets tend to sell off quite a bit. And you know a lot of that uncertainty of what's going to happen as a result. But when the actual conflict of war starts up, markets tend to do very well for that, that spending reason, I believe. And that was a Swiss publication? Yeah, it was the researchers at the Swiss Financial Institute. Awesome, awesome. I imagine they'd be quite neutral. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, Well, with the U.S. not engaged in a major conflict around the world currently, uh, presumably spending would decline. Would it have the same or opposite effect on the market? I mean, you could see, you know, the the kind of the opposite of, you know, what Joe's saying, if you kind of took away those stimulative impacts of, you know, the increased need for labor, the mobilization for the production of goods to kind of fuel the war machine would be kind of a, a net negative for the economy if you can, you know, kind of disregard the human cost of conflict. But, you know, as as Joe said, this two decade long conflict was kind of simmering towards the end. It wasn't, you know, a major mobilization across the economy that you maybe saw in, you know, World War II where we were 
kind of retooling factories, um, getting people that were outside of a labor pool into the labor pool. And obviously the kind of the subsequent baby boom that came out of it was was a big impact as well. But this is, you know, largely it's a big event for our generation. It's just a, a less big event for the economy, given, you know, kind of the scope and the nature of this conflict. So honestly, you know, you had a, a big aggregate spending impact over the 20 years, but these last few, you know, half a decade, you know, the, the spending wasn't really propping up much in the economy. So you're gonna, not going to see much of a kind of a negative pullback from that. I think if you really want to speculate too, there might be a, there was some sort of probability of future war conflict gauge, you could make an argument that with Taliban so quickly taking over Afghanistan, that these rumors of them harboring future terrorists, et cetera, it, the, the lack of smooth transition or a stable kind of US in favor government might might the mark people might be pricing in future conflict as a result. I know that's probably like the fourth knock on effect, but something to consider. Well, uh, speaking of spending, uh, Congress recently moved forward with the infrastructure bill as well as the budget resolution, both boosting spending. What do you see happening to the markets or the economy from these bills? What sort of impacts can we expect? I mean, across both these bills, you're seeing a pretty big aggregate impact of of spending over the term of their bills. They're both several years long bills, but you're seeing you know 1.2 trillion from the infrastructure package, some of which is new, and some of it is kind of repurposed unspent COVID money. And you're also seeing, you know, the $3.5 trillion budget resolution that expands a lot of kind of social safety net and more kind of the capital D democratic policy ideas. When we have an economy that's on the footing that we have today, you're going to see stimulative impacts of that money. It's just, you know, the nature of excess money going into the system, you know, new spending on, you know, bridges, roads, broadband, what have you, regardless of what you think of the, the calling policy direction of that spending, uh, the net aggregate impact is going to be, you know, an increase of production of goods, labor across the economy. So it's going to have, you know, uh, in a, a stimulative impact. Hmm. I mean, you have, you know, the other kind of the flip side of that coin is, you know, we've seen over the past few months increase in, you know, inflation reports. So the concern is, you know, is this spending, you know, properly targeted? Is the amount right? You know, and given kind of where we are in the economy, that's going to be ironed out over the next few months as to, you know, what the strength is. We just got a less strong than anticipated jobs report in the latest one after two pretty strong jobs reports. So we're kind of seeing, you know, a, a mixed bag and, you know, the argument of spending and inflation and is it transitory versus more secular long-term in nature still hasn't been kind of, you know, finalized or, or resolved. Just another step forward. I mean, I think a lot of, if you ignore the details and just kind of the top line level of spending, this was all expected with this administration. It's just kind of coming more to fruition. In addition to kind of the spending, you're hearing plans of increased taxes. And some of those are getting a little bit hung up on more moderate Democrats, not quite in favor of a lot of like the capital gains tax increases. So that's another factor. I think that's attributing to the market continuing on the tear that it's been on. There's really no end in sight to just stimulative efforts from the government. You know, taxes probably will follow, which could dampen that growth projection. But the more rumors we hear that it won't be as impactful as originally thought are just kind of more fuel on the fire. 
and that kind of speaks to you know a lot of what goes on in our in our political process. There's a lot of posturing, a lot of people kind of coming out with big numbers to get attention. I think the Biden administration originally came across or came out with a 2.3 trillion dollar infrastructure plan. A lot more articles and ink was spilled around that than it seems like. Once the bill actually passed, it seemed like a relative non-event. You know, it was roughly about half the size of the original plan. But it's still a big plan. It's still doing $1.2 trillion of you know, roads, bridges, broadband. But it seemed to be much less of an event when it actually happened versus when the rumor, when the first political kind of opening negotiation happened. And that's trillion with the T. That's a lot of, lot of coin we're talking about there. <laughs> I can't wait for $7.5 billion worth of electric school buses. Yeah. About how many buses are we estimating there? Depends on who you buy them from. It's got to be at least a dozen. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> With all the talk of spending and inflation and when the Fed may take action has been a pretty constant topic over the last few months. What's the latest thinking and expectations on the Fed? Powell gave his speech after the Jackson Hole conference that ended up being virtual. But honestly, rather than diving into the details of what he said, because it just feels like a broken record, it's almost more about what he didn't say. And really, the plan is unchanged. You know, the, the observation that jobs are recovering, but still have quite a ways to go is pretty well known. Inflation is still pretty high, but the Fed is still in the belief that it's transitory. The one thing that they did address was kind of this notion of tapering here at the end of 2021. And that pace of bond purchases would decrease. So it, it's funny to think about that because it's just they're not saying that they're not going to buy bond anymore. They're just saying the pace at which they're doing it will be decreasing. And that's a notion of tapering. You know, I think we're going to have a, a special presentation as a firm this month about that topic in general and just its effects on the overall economy and the markets. But that, that that's the one thing I think in this or the one takeaway from his speech is that is on the docket here in the next couple of months to slow that pace. And it still means that there's a lot of stimulus into the economy from the Fed, but that pullback might be a little bit of a change in expectation in terms of how, how quickly they're going to start tapering. The, the market largely shrugged off the speech. I think anything that could be perceived as negative was counteracted by kind of stay the course with inflation expectations and job and concerns of job growth. So not not much in general. We just kind of have to dig a little bit there in the speech to understand kind of their policy direction going forward. And a lot of their language gets parsed really minutely. So they're very careful on how they say things and even, you know, a comma here and there, word removed or word added to their, you know, meeting minutes gets analyzed pretty closely. So they're going to be pretty kind of closed lip. But I think, you know, we kind of know what the playbook is going to be. It's just a matter of timing. We know eventually they have to start tapering. And then following that, depending on how strong data is, they're going to potentially move rates. And just the speed of which is the, is the big question mark. Switching gears here just a little bit, trends in the wealth management space have seemed to be shifting at an increasing pace. What trends are you seeing today? And have any of the older trends been fading or sticking? That's a good question. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time just looking at what our advisors are using, how their tech stack is evolving. And the events of this past year and a half have really changed that landscape. I mean, there's you know people working from home. We went through a 
dramatic recession followed by a very strong market and some of the effects of that. And, and one that I think is interesting, it's come up quite a bit. And I don't know how many people are really talking about it, but just the issue with taxes now. And you know, one component of that is there's a lot of, of tax management software out there, uh, you know, trying to achieve so-called tax alpha. And this is a concept where if you have an all-stock portfolio, you can effectively sell things that are at a current loss, repurchase something, offset any future sales of things at an appreciated value, yada, yada. And if you do that over time, you can create a little bit of XX after-tax return. But if you think about where we're at today, that's really hard to do. There was a lot of reshuffling in portfolios that occurred anywhere from March to late summer 2020. We're now getting to that point where a lot of those positions bought, no matter what you bought, is highly appreciated. You're stepping over short-term gains to long-term gains in a lot of those positions, but it's difficult to try to recognize any sort of tax loss harvesting at this point. That's different. I think it makes a lot of those concepts useless right now. There's not much tax alpha in mining that could be gained, and that, that might be a trend here for a few years if the markets continue to stay at this high level. The second thing I would say is a lot of the strategies that that we manage as a firm are what would be considered tactical in na- in nature. And tactical strategies can be difficult in this time in non-qualified accounts because you you could make a trade like sell small cap in favor of of large cap and if you feel that that's the right call going forward, you have to consider the amount of tax that would be realize, especially short-term gain that could be realized in making that trade for your client account. So that's another trend. So I think tax management software being less important. And you know, secondly, uh, a focus on being a little bit more low turnover, tax aware in non-qualified accounts will continuing to be ta- uh, tactical in your qualified accounts is a trend that I think we'll continue to see people shift towards. Got to stay nimble. You mentioned uh, working from home and working from home has definitely changed a lot about our working lives. And uh, it's also changed a lot for advisors and they need to think or possibly even rethink how they're interacting with their clients and attracting new prospects. What trends have you seen here? And do you think that any of these trends are going to stick going forward? Is this, I mean, I, I feel like work from home is here to stay. I feel like there's a lot of people who don't ever want to go back, myself included. So what of this do we see sticking? Yeah, I mean, over the last year and a half, we've all come, you know, really accustomed to using Zoom or Skype or whatever you use. And, you know, coming with that, you know, it's kind of new and novel for the first however long, but, you know, kind of settled mm-hmm. into Zoom fatigue and, you know, people are sick of getting Zoom happy hours and that kind of you know, waited away. <laughs> but with more and more companies, especially with Delta kind of postponing their kind of return to the office, I think we're going to have, you know, some level of, you know, some hybrid and, you know, remote working in meetings, you know, going forward. And that directly impacts how advisors attract new prospects, how they communicate with their clients, how do they keep their retention high or improve retention. Just because I think the nature of those meetings is, has fundamentally changed, at least maybe not to where we are today, but there's, it's not, I don't think it's going to snap back to where we were, you know, pre-COVID. Coming into the office and doing your quarterly review, I think that's you know, going to be few and far between. I think preferences for, you know, especially the younger kind of growing in their wealth cohort of, of prospects, you know, I want to spend 15, 20 minutes driving to your office and 20 minutes back. I'd rather kind of 
have a quick update and, you know, advisors leveraging technology to communicate better, you know, have a good online presence, have a good kind of Zoom presence, you know, not just using your laptop camera Mm -hmm. um, is going to actually move the needle for a lot of people because it's, you know, it's low hanging fruit that's easy to adjust, but that, you know, greatly improves that process. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like I feel like Zoom got 10 years of R&D in 18 months. Their user base just skyrocketed and they're adding new features all the time. And I feel like there's there's definitely some productivity tools that they've added. And I think, like you said, the the people who kind of adapt to it and utilize and make the most of it are going to have the biggest impact. The people who are just using the the basic laptop camera, they might get left in the dust as some of these tools really, it'll really highlight the differences between the people who are making the most of it and the people who are just kind of using it right out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was a trend probably leading up to COVID. When you think of just kind of the generational differences, if we're going to stereotype, like, I think the advisor with the office, with the great view and the mahogany desk catered more to probably an older generation where they want that face-to-face contact. A lot of stuff is done on physical paper. I think the younger generation is going to continue to want more of that virtual contact. The, you know, not be as impressed by the office, but by the technology and the apps and everything that advisors can provide to them. And I mean, that's been a trend, Mm -hmm. like I said, for a long time, but I think this just really kind of amplified it. And it was a great opportunity for those advisors that had it figured out. And if you come across great in a Zoom call and you look professional and you have a high quality camera, I think it goes a long way versus a person trying to figure it out for the first time that puts one of those fake backgrounds that makes it look like they're sitting in the mountains. I, I, I think it's a real big differentiator for people. And You're not a fan of the uh, the beach background? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always at a chalet in the Swiss Alps. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. I just like, when I think about myself, that's the type of contact I want. I, I, I don't want to go into your office and have to talk to you and take three hours out of my day. Tell me what I need to know. Let's do it over a Zoom chat at six o'clock at, at night. And I'm happy. Yeah, when we uh, when we hop on these Helios team meetings, I think the most popular background is uh, Joe's office. Actually, <laughs> everyone took a snapshot of my background when I wasn't sitting at my chair and applied it to their own. At least it feels like we're all in the same office. I don't yep, know. we pounced on it. Except for your TV moves in the background, and none of ours do. <laughs> well, and to Joe's point, like in a prior life, you know, at I was working on a project of you know this was well before COVID of what the meeting of tomorrow or what does that look like just because of, you know, generational preferences and how that's going to change as people come into like the main cohort of clients for advisors, just the preferences change and advisors may be fearful of, you know, how do I build that relationship that keeps those clients, you know, happy, keeps them clients, keeps my retention high. It's a little bit harder to do in a virtual world. And that's where preferences are going. And with the virtual, I feel like, like Joe was saying, the, you know, the nice mahogany desk, that's impressive in person. But once you strip that away, what I'm impressed by is the performance and the value that you're adding to me. And the the bottom line becomes very important. I'm not going to be wooed by the mahogany desk. Right. That, that veneer of something fancy kind of goes away. Yeah. You could just take an image of a mahogany desk and put it on your Zoom chat. But it, it, it probably levels it, let's, it probably levels the playing field a little bit. Where, you know, if this becomes... Joe, I'll sell you an NFT of a mahogany desk. Thank you. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you don't need to be in New York with a high-priced office. I mean, you can attract clients from... You probably have a broader reach. You're going to look just as good on Zoom as somebody with a very expensive office space. So 
could level the playing field a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because like a lot of times advisors were, you know, not explicitly, but generally, you know, geographically concentrated in their clients. This kind of opens the door that they can have prospects and clients, you know, around the nation versus, you know, having 90% of your clients in your kind of local metro area. Yeah, we were working with a web developer a couple of months back and he had a great webcam and he was utilizing the imposed background so well. We were we had been in a meeting with him for almost an hour and he was somebody overseas. So there, there was a time difference and all that sort of stuff going on. But his background was fake and we did not realize it until almost an hour into this meeting. So it'll definitely level the playing field. If digitally we can all present on the same field, now it's going to come down to what I'm actually doing for you, not what I'm showing you, but what I'm giving you. I think it'll be interesting how it all plays out over the next kind of two years. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what things look like in two years, how much of it is remote and digital. I think the forward thinking people are going to stick with it and that's here to stay, but it'll definitely be interesting to see. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you for the time today, gentlemen. Uh, we do have a couple of upcoming events. Joe touched on it briefly. We have a webinar coming up on Thursday the 23rd with our CEO, Chris Shuba. It's going to be a quants view on tapering. So keep an eye on your inboxes or visit our website today if you haven't had a chance to sign up yet. Also, at the end of the month, we're going to be at the Riskalyze Fearless Investing Summit in Palm Springs, California. If you find yourself in the area, definitely come check us out. Helios Integrated Planning is going to be presenting at a breakout session, so we're definitely looking forward to that. And in the meantime, uh, thank you for joining us today for the September edition of the Due Daily Podcast. We'll look forward to seeing you guys next month. Helios Quantitative Research is a DBA of Clear Creek Financial Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Helios Quantitative Research itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, tax, legal, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where our firm and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by our firm unless a client service agreement is in place. Helios Quantitative does not work with individuals and therefore does not provide personal financial advice. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Helios Quantitative Research does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made or given by or on behalf of Helios Quantitative Research as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including indirect, indirect, special, or consequential loss of damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2021, Helios Quantitative Research, LLC, all rights reserved.